Good to be with you guys. Uh, last week we had a sermon called Prayer and Epinosis. If you weren't here and you don't know what epinosis is, you can go to the website, get that message for free. Very important for our Christian understanding and our pursuit of God. And the message was primarily about that. That what really matters in life is our pursuit of God. And not just knowing about God, but actually knowing him in a real intimate, personal way. That word epinosis speaks of clear, exact, experiential, participatory, relational knowledge. That's what we're pursuing with God as Christians. Um, the first Christian book I ever read has, is still formative, has been formative, and is still informative in my life on the subject of pursuing God. It's called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Read this book 20 years ago, and I could still quote quotes from it and the page number. Um, it's radically impacted me. So it's our featured resource in light of last week's sermon. If you are stirred to, yeah, I want to pursue God. I want this epinosis thing. I want this participatory relational thing with God, but you weren't sure how to go after it. This book will be tremendously helpful. Uh, shaped my life and is still shaping my life 20 years later. I've read it several times since then. There's this prayer that he writes on page 20 that um, was really just changed me at the time. He, he wrote and said, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. That prayer changed my life and set me on a pursuit of God. And so this book will be valuable to you guys. You can get it uh, at the resource table today. And um, please do. It's, and actually, it's for free download on Kindle right now as well. I just found out. So if you ain't got no dough, you can either go to the resource table and steal one, which is okay to do at this church. You can take books. Um, or you can go down one. Download one for free on Kindle. Okay, open up now to Ephesians. Are you guys laughing at me because I was stumbling over my words? Or because I sanctioned stealing at church? Is that it? Okay. How did it go this morning preparing for church? Did you spend more time on your hair or your heart? Which one? Looking at some of you, I could tell it was not your hair. I can't see your heart, so I don't really know. Good job endeavoring to get here on time, because Jesus was here a little bit early, waiting for you all. Good job knowing that you're gathering to, for, and around Jesus. Let's make it all about him today and not us. You're opening to Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue our study there. If you're real quick, you might want to put a finger in Romans 1 as well, because we'll get there in a moment. We're looking at this passage, verses 15 through 23. We're kind of taking our time on Paul's prayer here for the church in Ephesus. We're going to read verses 15 through 18. We've already covered verses 15, 16, and 17. Today we'll cover just a part of verse 18. But let's read 15 through 18. Paul writes and says to the church in Ephesus, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge. There's that word epinosis of God. And here's our verse for today. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light 
so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence in our midst. Thank you that though we are fully undeserving, your love for us is radical in pursuing today. Thank you that more than we would ever love you, you love us more than we would ever even imagine that we want to know you. You want to know us. Make those things real for us today, Lord. Save us from religion. Save us from churchianity. Save us from going through the motions. Bring us into a real, true, vibrant, beautiful, meaningful love relationship with you. Please, God. Otherwise, just being in this place together is silliness. We really want to meet with you and we really want to hear from you. We believe that the Bible is your word to us, your revelation to us. And so speak to us profoundly, Lord. I I ask that you would please anoint me to teach and preach your truth in a way that brings glory to your name and accomplishes your purposes here in the coastlands and in the nations. So please, Lord, anoint me for that. Allow me to get out of the way. Empower me by your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear what you have to say to the church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to cover the first third of this verse. Just the part that says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light. Last night at about midnight, Kate and I were asleep and uh, our seven-year-old daughter, Daisy, happened to crawl in bed with us last night as well. So she was between us. And we heard the proverbial bump in the night. Kate and I did. Uh, We heard some noise upstairs. It was like a creaking and a crackling and just, you know, one of those noises that you hear in the night. And I I thought Kate was sound asleep and I thought I was asleep, but suddenly I was awake and listening to this noise. And I pop my head up and I look over at her and her head's up and she reaches her arm over and she's like, what was that? What was that? And, you know, I'm the man, so I'm trying to play it cool. And I'm, I, I, I'm dreading the moment that she says, go look. Because, you know, the man always has to go look. And I'm just dreading that moment. And uh, we actually have a BB gun in our room. So I'm thinking, man, is the BB gun loaded? Like, what's the BB gun actually going to do? And I got I to gotta go. I got to go look at this thing. So I, I tried to ignore it and I, I tried to play it cool. And I was like, oh, honey, it's just nothing. It's the wind. And it had been windy uh, late at night. There's a little wind that came through. And then we heard it again. The bump and, and the crackle and the noise. And so I, I could tell she was putting out the vibe like, listen, man, get out of bed and go look. <laughs> and so I get out of bed and I start flipping on every single light. And I go upstairs and I'm kind of lurking. I didn't take the BB gun. I just, I didn't think it would help. And I'm lurking, and then I, I discovered that the wind had blown open one of the doors. The kids had forgotten to shut a door, and so it was slapping against the outside of the building and just making that, that noise that we heard. And it was terrifying when we heard it. And so even though I figured out that it was the door flapping in the wind, I stayed up for an hour just listening to the noises. You, you just get in this mindset of, of fear. Something about darkness. You see, if we had heard that noise during the day, we wouldn't even thought of it. We wouldn't have even noticed it. And if we did notice it, it just wouldn't even matter in the slightest. But there's something about the darkness that will cause you to hear noises you otherwise would not have heard, and see shadows that you might not have seen before. 
same things that during the day wouldn't even make you flinch. You see, we imagine there to be some sort of evil lurking in the darkness. Humanity has this common and innate understanding of the symbolic nature of darkness. So powerful is this innate, common, symbolic understanding of the nature of darkness that we're afraid of things in the dark that we just would never be afraid of otherwise. Isn't it interesting that we never have to teach our kids to be afraid of the dark? They just are. No mommy ever says, now, sweetie, as I'm tucking you in, be very afraid because it's dark. (laughs) Nobody ever says that to their kids. But, But somehow kids innately have this fear of the dark. And some of you have never quite gotten over it. Neither have I. But light and darkness are powerful and universal symbols for good and evil. And throughout scripture, evil is characterized as darkness. And good is characterized as light. And in scripture, God is understood as the one who brings light, both speaking light into existence, literally at creation, and the one who brings light into our hearts spiritually through revelation. And in scripture, God himself is portrayed in his glory as being light. He's not just light. He's not some impersonal force. He is God, a person, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He's a spiritual being, and yet he's portrayed in his glory as light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. John 1 speaks of Jesus coming as the light of the world and enlightening all of humanity. And Paul uses that verb here, enlighten. It's translated flooded with light. He's praying that the church in Ephesus, their hearts would be flooded with light. The verb is enlighten. And he uses it to represent the action of light dispelling or dealing or doing away with darkness, which is what light does, right? Last night, the darkness was an issue for Kate and I. So when I got out of bed to investigate the noises, I turned on every light I could. When the light comes on, the dark goes away and it changes things. And here Paul is praying for a change in their lives through the enlightening of their heart. Another translation, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That your hearts would be flooded with light. He's praying that they would have greater revelation, knowledge, understanding, enlightenment. Of all that they have in Christ. The hope that they have in Christ, which will be the topic of next week's sermon. But why does Paul make this a matter of prayer, this issue of light and enlightenment, their hearts being flooded with light? Why is this a matter of prayer for him? Because we already studied last week that he prayed for them to have spiritual wisdom and insight that they might have epinosis of God, clear, exact, experiential, participatory knowledge of God. And if they have that, then then aren't they enlightened? Don't they already have understanding and knowledge? Didn't he already pray this thing for them? Certainly epinosis would include understanding our hope in Christ. That which verse 18 is talking about. So why is he praying additionally here that their hearts would be flooded with light? Is Paul just saying the same thing in a different way? Is he just being redundant for emphasis? I don't think so. Here's what I think. I think that in the truest way, Our hearts, as Christians, he's writing to Christians in Ephesus, our hearts 
need to be flooded with light by God because they get darkened from time to time. Our hearts as Christians need to be flooded with light continually by God because they get darkened by sin from time to time. Now, what we understand about humanity and the nature of the fall is that our hearts were initially darkened by the results of the fall. Humanity sinning and rebelling against God and so having a sin nature. God created us for relationship. He created us to be in and enjoy his presence, to dwell in his light, so to speak. But sin brought separation. And with that separation from God, who is ultimate light, it brought darkness and a darkening of the human heart and human understanding. So that scripture portrays humanity apart from Christ in an interesting way. Here's where we'll turn to Romans if you had your finger there. Romans chapter 1, I'll start reading in verse 16. Paul writing again says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of this good news, the gospel about Christ. It is a power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Listen to this description. People apart from Christ. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Humanity, suffering from the results of sin and the sinful nature and the action of sin themselves, it says their minds became dark and confused. As the New American Standard puts it, their foolish hearts were darkened. Ephesians will go on to say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 19 says about these people, their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they've closed their minds and hardened their hearts against them. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. So what the Bible is saying here is that sin brought darkness and darkened understanding, darkened minds, hearts, and perception to humanity as a whole. But then comes Jesus. And Jesus brought light in order to rescue humanity from the darkness, from evil, from sin, from both its power and its penalty. John chapter 1 talks about Jesus coming as the light of the world. 
John chapter 3 talks about judgment becoming because people love the darkness more than the light. And so they rejected the light, the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says about himself in John 12, 46, I have come as light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Jesus says, I came to rescue people from the darkness. Evil, sin, its results. And so then we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, realizing that he came to rescue us, and that he did so through his finished work on the cross, where he died in our place and paid the price for our sins and rose from the dead to offer us new life, we who have been rescued from the dark, live life in order to see others rescued from the darkness. Right? We have the same mandate that the Apostle Paul had. Jesus said to Paul in Acts 26, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness of their sins and will be given a place among God's people who are set apart by me in faith. By faith in me, excuse me. So humanity is separated from God, lost in darkness, darkened in their understanding, in their hearts, suffering from the power and the penalty and the oppression of sin and evil, Satan. Jesus comes to rescue us from those things. And then we are sent into the world as Christ's agents of rescue for others. But what we understand as we engage in that is that there is a battle for the souls of men and women. There is a battle between light and darkness, proverbially speaking. The light is greater than the darkness. It's not equal and opposite powers. God is greater than Satan. Somebody say amen. But there's a battle nonetheless. That's why we pray persistently as we spoke of last week as we discovered the concept of importunity. There is a battle between light and darkness. Look what 2 Corinthians 4 says about this. It says, If the good news, the gospel, which we preach, is hidden behind a veil, it's hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who's the god of this world, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news, the gospel. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, speaking of creation, the Genesis account, let there be light and darkness has made this light, the light of the gospel, shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And we, those who have put our faith in Jesus, repented of our sins, now have this light shining in our hearts. So when God causes us to be born again by his spirit, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, what happens there is that God is enlightening us to the truth of the gospel. He's given us revelation. He's causing us by his spirit to understand. What happens is the lights go on in our hearts as it reads in the passage that we just read. We put our faith in Jesus Christ and we are rescued from the power and the penalty of darkness. Colossians 1 puts it beautifully as it says in verse 13. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness or the authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. 
First Peter 2.9 says, God called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. God has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then this, this idea of light and darkness is carried out to final destinations. Heaven and hell. Hell is spoken of in the Bible as a place where there's outer darkness. Right? Ultimate separation away from the ultimate light who is God himself. But heaven is spoken of thusly in Revelation 22. It says, no longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be there. And his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, right? This thing of darkness is done away with. There will be no night there. There's not even gonna be a need for lamps or the sun for the Lord God will shine on them. The Lord himself will illumine them, as it says in another translation. God as ultimate light will be the fullness of light in the final destination of the Christian. And for those who reject the light, the person of Jesus Christ, and love rather the darkness, theirs will be outer darkness. There will also be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and beg every man and woman and child to be reconciled to God through him. But you see this thing of light and dark doesn't just play out in the beginning before we're saved, nor does it just play out in the final destination. Light and dark are very much in play in the life of the Christian. Light and dark are very much in play at this moment in the life of the Christian. And when we follow Jesus, when we endeavor truly to be disciples of his, not merely professors, right, professing that we believe in him, but when we endeavor to actually be his disciples, to follow after Jesus Christ, to pursue God, then we walk in and experience his light. Jesus said this in John 8. It says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. You see, what happens in the the Christian life, I'm making this argument that light and dark are still in play. What happens in the Christian life, at least in mine, is that we have this proclivity to dabble in darkness. We love the light. We love Jesus Christ, but we have this proclivity to dabble in in darkness. You know what the things of darkness are. The things that are contrary to God. The things that are somewhat evil in nature or ungodly in nature. Things that have that tone and tenor rather than things that have the tone and the tenor and the expression of Christ. We have a tendency to dabble with darkness. And when we do so, what happens is that our understanding, our perception, our spiritual eyes are darkened. You see, if sin first brought darkness and darkened hearts to humanity, sin still has that effect even upon the redeemed to a certain degree. Although we've been rescued from ultimate darkness, from its ultimate power and penalty, when we dabble in darkness, we still experience the darkening effect of it upon our hearts and minds and spiritual perception. This is why 
Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, for Christians, that their hearts would be flooded with light. And this is why we need this prayer functioning in our lives. Because unless I'm the only one in this room, we have a tendency to dabble in dark things. We're no longer under its power. We'll no longer bear its penalty. We've been saved, but we often engage it in play. What we must realize is that when we are saved by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we become new beings and we have a new way of being. Right? We become new and we have a new way of being. Colossians 1, we already read part of it, but expanding upon it, verses 12 through 14. So it's giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Listen to that phrase. The saints in light. That's the identity of the Christian. Holy ones in light. For he delivered us from the domain or the authority of darkness and transferred us. There's been an address change. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, so we're brand new beings. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians 5. Our new identity is that we are saints in light. And having a new identity, we have new dispositions. We actually long for the light. We, we, we rejoice in truth. We want to pursue God. But there remains until we are in glory with him this allure of darkness in the life of the Christian. See Paul talking about it in Romans chapter 7, where he says, I know the right thing to do, and I want to do the right thing, but I find myself doing the wrong thing. There is this allure of darkness, though we are sons and daughters of light, saints in light, the holy ones in light, and we love the light. There's still the struggle. But we must remember that we have a new way of doing life. A new way of being, Ephesians 5, 8 and 9. <clears throat> Excuse me, it says, For once you were full of darkness. Description of humanity before coming to faith in Christ. But now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you, the light of the Lord, produces only what is good, right, and true. We have a new way of being. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because of God's great love for us, we are different people. And as different people with a new identity, we must live in a different way. It's not merely positional, a new identity. It's practical, a new way of being. Because of what Christ has done for us, because of God's great love for us, we are new people who must live in a new way. Here again, we see this concept of gospel indicatives and imperatives. We've spoken about this before, right? An indicative is merely a statement of fact, right? A statement of fact in this context based on what Christ has done for us. A statement of fact based on what Christ has done for us. A gospel indicative. Gospel indicatives are followed by gospel imperatives, an imperative is a command, a direct command. 
So if the indicative is a statement of fact based on what Christ has done for us, the imperative is the command which is telling us the appropriate response as Christians to what Christ has done for us. Gospel indicative, statements of fact, and imperatives, commands, or correct responses. So the statement of fact in the verse we just read is this. You were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. You've been born again. You have light from the Lord now. There's there's been a change from dark to light. And the direct command then is, the imperative is, so live as people of light. Christian, be true to your new identity. Live as people of the light. You're not characterized by darkness anymore. You're not ruled by darkness anymore. Live as people of the light. The wonderful news is that included in the gospel is not just these statements of fact and associated correct responses, but enabling grace. This is good news. Enabling grace, grace by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to live the way he wants us to live. Right? It says in Ephesians 5, 9, for this light within you produces what is good, right, and true. So think of the light as the truth of God and the presence of God. Because we are in Christ, God now resides in us by his spirit. We'll call this light. For this light, the truth and the presence of God within you produces what is good, right, and true. What God has done for you in Christ is producing good things in your life. The process and the work of sanctification. Where there was once an authority of darkness at work in us, as Ephesians 2.22 says, we were obeying the devil, the spirit at work in our hearts of those who refused to obey God. Now, as Philippians 2 says, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Christian, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now, if God's light, his truth and presence within us produces what is good, right, and true, as Ephesians 2.9 says, then it must also be understood that the opposite is true. That the darkness that lures us, the darkness that we dabble in, produces what is bad, wrong, and false. And these things can and do influence the life of the Christian. 1 Corinthians 15 is explicit about this, starting in verse 33. It says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. Listen how clear the Bible is. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Okay, get a grip. Look at who you're surrounding yourself with. Good company lends itself to good morals, bad company, bad morals. No brainer. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. What a word for us today. Think carefully about what is right. We we seldom do that. Just sit and think, what is the right way to live in this instance? Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. The reason why this is important on many levels, but but one, is because sin begets sin. Sin is progressive in nature, isn't it? 
Nobody usually comes out of the gates and sins hugely. Right? No, nobody gets married and the next day commits adultery. I mean, some people do, but gee whiz. <clears throat> For most people, it's this progressive thing. And it's the progressive nature of sin. Right? Sin is progressive in nature. When we give ourselves to it, it gains ground in us and we give ourselves further to it and we sin more. And we've given more ground. It's got more of a foothold in it. We give it more and we find ourselves sinning more and more in greater degrees and ways. What happens is that there's an increased darkening in the eyes of our hearts in our spiritual perception, in our thought processes about truth and righteousness and God and grace and the gospel, our spiritual perception is darkened as we engage more and more in sin. The fact that Paul is praying for their hearts to be enlightened, flooded with light, teaches us two things. Number one, that enlightenment, this flooding that we're now longing for, is a matter of divine intervention. Enlightenment in the life of the Christian and the pre-Christian is a matter of divine intervention. We need to be rescued from darkness. It's not a matter of grit or ingenuity. It is a matter of grace and intervention. We need initially to be saved, rescued from darkness, and then continually as Christians, we need rescuing from darkness. It's not about mustering it up. It's not about America get or doneism, Right? It's not about grit or ingenuity. It's about grace and intervention. Enlightenment is a matter of divine intervention. Intervention, excuse me. God rescuing us. We see that in the fact that Paul's praying for them, for that very thing. But the second thing we see is that enlightenment is a matter of continuance. Enlightenment is a matter of divine intervention, and it's a matter of continuance. We need to be continually rescued from darkness and to continually walk in obedience. Though we have been, as I said already, though we have been rescued from the power and the penalty of darkness, we still dabble in darkness. And what we must realize is that this realm of darkness, the realm of Satan and evil, is portrayed in Scripture not only figuratively, but as possessing real power. This realm of darkness is seen in Scripture as possessing real power. And this power attempts to exert influence over us, even though we are saints in light positionally, i.e., temptation. Right? Temptation is this darkness attempting to exert influence over us. And then as we give in to temptation, our consciences are seared, our hearts are hardened, the eyes of our heart are darkened, perception is blurred, and now it gets more difficult to resist temptation. You're less sensitive to the conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul is praying that their hearts will be flooded with light because of this real power and hold of sin. See, it's not only that when we sin, we incur guilt, but we actually let in some darkness and it's progressive power in our lives. And this darkness and its results obscures the truth of the gospel 
and what we have in Christ. It obscures it. It obscures the hope of his calling that we'll talk about next week, the confident hope he has given to us. So that things like this happen. So that we get stuck in places of shame. That's just where the darkness wants us. Stuck in places of shame. So that we get trapped in a mindset of condemnation. So that we get weighed down with the burden of sin and this feeling that we'll never escape its power or its penalty. And we begin to live these lies. Because our hearts are darkened through the continual engagement of sin. We believe these lies. God will never accept me. God can forgive others, but I don't know that he can forgive me. I'll never get rid of this guilt. I'll never get rid of this stain. I'll never be done with this shame. And we believe those things and we get trapped in those things because darkness obscures the truth of the gospel and what we have in Christ. So what the Christian must do by the power of the Holy Spirit is overcome the invasive nature of darkness. How can we do that? How can we move toward having our hearts flooded with light? Again, it's a matter of divine intervention. We need God to rescue us. But listen to me. Divine intervention is not void of human interaction. Divine intervention is not void of human interaction. We need God to rescue us, but that does not mean that we are entirely passive in this thing because God uses means. God uses things which we engage in in the process of rescuing us. The word of God. The teaching of the word of God. Correct doctrine, belief, thought processes. Prayer as evidence in our text today. And obedience. Look what it says in Psalm 19. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So God's commands, God's truths, give us light. They enlighten us, but not just as standalones, but as we obey them. Obedience leads to enlightenment. If rebellion leads to a further darkening, then obedience leads to further enlightenment. The commands of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Look at Psalm 119, verse 30. The teaching of the word gives light. So even the simple can understand. So the means previously were the commands of God and their obedience. The means here is the teaching of the word of God. The study, the teaching, the preaching, the hearing of the word of God is a means by which we are rescued from darkness. Listen to what 2 Timothy 2 says. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people, gently instructing those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. That's heavy. The means here of rescuing is the faithful witness Christian. Persuasive doctrinal arguments done with humility and gentleness. God is the one, it says there, who will change those people's hearts. But the means are the Christians who are willing to engage in the conversation and talk about the truth. 
And then our text in Ephesians, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light. The means here is prayer. So in each of these, it is God who does the rescuing of enlightenment, but he uses means, the word of God, the teaching of the word of God, correct doctrine, prayer, and obedience. So what the Christian does, because we have a new way of being, if we, is we give ourselves to these things. We give ourselves to the word of God. Christian, I, I just don't know how to say it other than we need to read our Bibles. Like it's just, it's just not optional for the Christians. It's really not. The message of culture is so dark, so prevalent, and so loud that if you're not combating that with the truth of the word of God, then the eyes of your heart are continually being darkened. Your spiritual perception is being maligned. You are inhibited from thinking true and right and correct on the gospel in Christ and the hope that we have in him. And so we get stuck in shame, condemnation, rationalization for sinful, wicked rebellion and behavior. God will not be mocked. We'll reap what we sow. And our lives reek with the destruction of darkened spiritual perception. So we give ourselves to the reading of the word of God. We give ourselves to the preaching of the word of God. We give ourselves to obedience. We give ourselves to prayer. We give ourselves to Christian persuasion of right and true doctrine and humility and gentleness. These things illuminate or enlighten us so that we can think rightly upon Christ and the gospel and live fruitful lives in which we enjoy Jesus together and help others to do the same. I want to finish just by reading a little bit of Ephesians. Turn to chapter 4. I just want to read this. Because this is what living as saints in light, children of light, looks like. Verse 17 of Ephesians 4. Paul writes and says, With the Lord's authority I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives, because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Right? Imperative, indicative. 
Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It's shameful to even talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And that's your assignment this week. One area in your life that you know is dabbling in darkness. Take the time to try to understand what the Lord would have you do. Pray that the eyes of your own heart would be flooded with light that you might see the glory of Christ. Amen? Lord, thank you for these wonderful, profound, radical, tough truths. Thank you that you love us enough to rescue us from darkness. Lord, if there's anyone here who remains in darkness, we ask that you would cause the light of the gospel to shine in their hearts right now, that you'd reveal to them the truth that Jesus Christ died for them because you love them and that he rose from the dead to give them new and eternal life. They'd repent of their sins, change their mind about it and turn from it and turn towards you, ask for forgiveness and that their hearts would be flooded with light and they'd be washed and cleansed and made brand new. Lord, for those of us for whom it's already happened, but we're dabbling, just help us, Lord. Convict us and enable us by grace to walk in obedience and righteousness for your name's sake, Lord. Lead us this week in paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. Holy Spirit, show us where we're dabbling in darkness. Show us where the darkness has a foothold. Show us where our perception is maligned because of the darkness. And help us to give ourselves to obedience in the word of God and prayer. And deliver us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.